Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Carlin Romano. He was the longtime critic at large for the Chronicle of Higher Education. He teaches at Ursinus College and the University of Pennsylvania in the Annenberg School of Journalism. He is the author of a book called America the Philosophical, that's from 2012. He's been president of the National Book Critics Circle, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, he was a longtime critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer. His essays and re reviews have appeared in The Nation, The New Yorker, Harper's, The American Scholar, etc. He is here to tell us about the art of criticism. Uh, welcome, Carlin. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, I just correct one one thing. Uh, I was professor of philosophy and humanities at Ursinus, but I left a couple of years ago. So otherwise, it's all right. Oh well, well Ernest Science, Ursinus College is lost. So, uh, the, <laughs> anyway. but you know, one thing uh, that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago when we were talking, uh, a new project that you're involved in called Moment. Uh, just tell us quickly what that project is. Sure. Uh, Moment Magazine is a bi-monthly Jewish magazine of culture. It was co-founded by Elie Wiesel way back 30 or 40 years. And it just looks in an ecumenical way at the entire Jewish world of culture. And um, last year, I met the editor-in-chief. We started talking. We started talking about Elie Wiesel. As it happens, I was with Ellie the day that Rabin was assassinated, uh, and we had the same editor and so on. Anyway, one thing led to another, and she asked me if I'd be interested in writing. I, I wrote a piece about Abraham uh, Heschel, and then she liked it, and she invited me to be critic at large. So um, it's been enjoyable, a way to delve into Jewish culture. I've written about Primo Levi. I wrote about a new museum in Italy of Italian Jewish history. Uh, so, yeah, you know, listeners out there, if you've never looked at Moment magazine, take a look. Good stuff. So g general talk about the art of criticism, uh, criticism in, in the United States. Is, is the art of criticism, is, is it in trouble? Um, do we see perhaps the sensitivities that are out there in public life uh, making it very difficult for critics to book critics, film, music critics to do their work? Uh, I, I do think tough criticism, hard criticism is under threat and it's a part of the whole backlash against you know, free speech and uh, being able to offend people um, when you write, when you speak, and so on. So I, I think what we can see, uh, if we, we talk about the book world, 
what we see is more and more writers on books moving toward being a publicist rather than a critic. Um, this You can see this in assigning as well as in the writing. Uh, the assigning, if it's a Nigerian novelist, Nigerian-American novelist, let's get another Nigerian-American novelist to review it. Uh, that makes a certain sense, right, in, in the you know realm of expertise, but it also generally means that the reviewer will be more favorable, more sympathetic, and so on. Um, there's been a turn, as you know, Mark, in our whole society against offensiveness. It's a terrible thing that you might offend someone else. But it is one of the critics' charges, you know, to occasionally offend by saying, that's not a very good book. That's not written very well. Uh, you haven't done the research, or many people wrote this book before you. Um, so I think we are seeing that uh, when you look at the surviving, you know, um, critical uh, venues, whether it's the New York Times Book Review or New York Review of Books and so on, uh, I think you're seeing less of that traditional kind of waspish, tough criticism. And I, I would just close by saying, you know, criticism isn't just um, pointing out the flaws of something. Uh, one of the things I felt I had to learn as a critic over a long 25-year period is the importance of praise. Um, that is significant. Uh, but I do think uh, the praise is will really winning the game recently, and uh, tough criticism is kind of hard to find in, in the mainstream critical outlets. Yeah, yeah. You know, Matthew Arnold, his his point in about criticism was the first job of the critic is to see the object accurately, right? So if it if it deserves praise, you give it praise. Uh, if it if it deserves dispraise, then then you do that as as well. Um, but yeah, as you as you say, you know, people feel uh, uh, stakes are high when when you when you criticize a book, but. Coming back to the issue of sort of telling the truth, seeing things clearly, and cutting through all of the the bogus, uh, the bogus discourse surrounding something, was that something that drew you into the field of becoming a critic in the first place? I mean, did, when when you were when you were very young, was this an aspiration to be someone who was going to uh, be clear and tell the truth? Yeah, you know, there, there used to be a TV advertisement in New York where a bunch of kids are sitting on a scoop, a stoop, and, you know, one of them said, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a policeman, you know, I want to be mayor. I, I can't say I had that experience. I want to be uh, a critic. Um, what I can say is that uh, I, I come from a working class family, and uh, I'm always reminded of something the, the writer Umberto Eco said to me. Uh, Umberto also came from you know working class his father worked in a factory and he once said to me uh kind of choking up he said you know when when i was a kid just the the idea that i could get a job where my hands would not be calloused and ugly the way my father's were you know when he came home from the the factory that's all i wanted i saw the bright lights of milan he grew up in a town near milan called alessandria i i have a somewhat similar experience i thought gee if i you know if well, i where did do you grow a job up where i grew up in brooklyn new york and my father was in the restaurant business uh started out as a waiter ended up the manager of a lot of steakhouses in in new york and uh i even worked in his restaurant you know for for a time and you know my thought was gee if i can get a job where i'm not standing for eight hours that would be wonderful 
Um, so, you know, I was a very bookish kid. I went to used bookstores and I would come back with 10 books and my father would scratch his head. Uh, uh, he did live long enough to see me become book editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer. So it finally made some sense to him. But, I, I you know, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I was very drawn to philosophy and I just kind of got lucky with book criticism. Uh, I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1982 uh, and the book editor there Two years later, went to the New York Times as the deputy editor of the book review, and I got very lucky. I was uh, 29, I think, and um, the legendary editor, Gene Roberts of the Philadelphia Inquirer, leapfrogged me over a lot of senior people, people who probably more deserved the job. And I was the book editor of a major paper at, at 30, and a year later, he let me be the critic as well. So I, I, I really got so lucky. I thought, my God, if I can think of a job that the world does not really need, it's this one. <laughs> you know, uh, But they're paying me to read books and write about them. And then it continued for 25 years at the paper. Uh, well, you, you wrote for the Inquirer for a long time. You were the Chronicle of Higher Education and, and many other uh, publications. What, what did you find editors wanted most out of you? Well, uh, actually, at the Inquirer, after a very short period, the editors wanted um, less of what I actually was doing, which was sophisticated highbrow books. And I would say that during my, my tenure as book editor, we probably reviewed more books of scholarship, of philosophy, uh, b books that um, people who really care about literature, history, and so on would want to read about. And most book sections, you know, were kind of led by the nose, by the publicity departments of the major publishers and the obvious big novel, um, the ephemeral journalistic book. And I kind of pushed against that. And at a certain point, you know, I was actually talked to um, and told I was using too many professors as writers and, and so on. Um, so, you know, I, I think most editors in, in the mass media um, listen too much to publicity departments, to the obvious thing they're supposed to review. And I think we've seen quite a decline there. I mean, if you look at the New York Times book review and its almost inability to delve into the world of scholarship and serious nonfiction, um, very poor job today. Hmm. Did, did, did you have any, or did they have any evidence that readers were unhappy with uh, the highbrow tendencies? Um, you know, I think they didn't. And, uh, you know, we're not allowed to say dirty words, right, on, on uh, podcasts, I guess. But at one point, my editor-in-chief said, you use too many effing professors and nobody's interested. And the interesting situation I had with one of my immediate bosses at the Inquirer was that he came from a very privileged professional background, and I came from a working class background. And I told him, you know, listen, I know barbers and bus drivers and so on who love opera and love literature, and you know, and your assumption that the only people who'd be interested in this is the professoriate at Penn is completely wrong. You do not know who you're reading are. So we had this kind of, you know, back and forth. And, you know, I think 
with a few exceptions, I guess the New York Review of Books, uh, you know, and the Times as it used to be. I think the Wall Street Journal book section does an excellent job today. Um, you know, you, you've had this devolution to uh, simpler books, more ephemeral books, and uh, it's a real loss to many of the serious thinkers and writers who are working in this country. Uh, I, I am absolutely certain that the, the editors who come out of a more highbrow world underestimate the curiosity and the capacities of the more middle class or working class readers about about these things, especially if you've got good writers, good writers writing reviews about complicated material. I, I think I think they made a mistake. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I did. I have to admit, I had a kind of simple minded notion uh, as as the editor of the book review. Uh, I often thought, well, you know, uh, journalists can't think and professors can't report. Uh, because I would often have a review from a professor that didn't report a single fact from the book and just went off on some arabesque. And then I would have reviews from journalists who gave you, you know, every little detail of the book and then had nothing to say. So, you know, I would try to get people to move to the other side. You know, tell me what you think about this wonderful book also. Or uh, could you tell us actually who Margaret Mead was since you never mentioned who she was in your review? Uh, yeah, so these are pr some of the problems of editing book reviews. Did, did you, you know, at age 30, did you have role models um, either among the editing or the critic world, uh, Leon Wieseltier or, or people like that? Yeah, well, I, I can't say that Leon was one, but, um, you know, uh, I, I suppose, you know, I actually cracked to somebody recently. We may talk about this before the end of our conversation, the NBCC, National Book Critics Circle controversy I was in. But I, I do remember uh, cracking to one of my colleagues as, as we went back and forth about the issues there. I said, you know, I don't actually ask what would Jesus do. I, I'm more likely to ask what would Mencken do, you know. And so, you know, Mencken or, you know, kind of curmudgeon, iconoclast not being afraid of saying what you think is important uh, to say. So, you know, critics of, of, of that sort, I would say, um, uh, I've never really thought much in regard to models, but I could see myself operating in a similar, you know, line a, as they did, you know, not, not being afraid to say something that might be provocative. Yeah. Carlin, you, you mentioned the, the controversy of the National Book Critics Circle. Why don't you go ahead and describe what happened there? I mean, you were at the center. Yeah, yeah, I was the the, the center and the target. I mean, uh, I try and give you a very br brief, uh, you know, precise of, of of that. What happened? J just, is that just very quickly, Carlin. You were the president. Of right. I'm a former president of the National Book Critics Circle. I'm now on the board. I've been on and off the board for 35 years, um, and I'm in the second year of a, th a three-year term. And what happened is that, like a lot of organizations uh, in the light of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, a, a certain subset of our board wanted to issue a statement in sympathy with Black Lives Matter. Um, I was perfectly happy with that. I, I believe in it as a truth, but I believe in it as a subset of all lives matter. I don't necessarily support every uh, activity being done under the aegis of Black Lives Matter, like defunding police and so on. But anyway, my attitude was we're a 24-person board. If the board votes for this statement, I'm, I'm happy for it to go out. But this statement was full of really, I thought, absurd generalizations about white supremacy. And one of the key things that I questioned was there was a line that says white, white gate keeping stifles black voices across every level of the publishing industry. 
And I thought that's that was absolute nonsense. In fact, it's been goodwilled ecumenical white editors who had a lot to do with the explosion, the nice explosion of black voices in our literature over the last 30 years. Uh, but what happened is that one of the chief authors of that statement, uh, a Ugandan-American poet who teaches in Nebraska called, uh, named Hope Wabuke, she got very angry about my commenting in an internal email uh, about that, uh, and she leaked the email. Our emails are supposed to be confidential, and she resigned, and she accused me of racism and the organization of racism, and then everything went bonkers. A bunch of people resigned because she had violated confidentiality. Others said I was a racist and they couldn't serve on the board with me. A few people, including the senior African-American on the board, John McWhorter, resigned out of sympathy with me because he thought the way racism was being bandied about was ridiculous. And um, ultimately, a a group of the members uh, voted to have a special meeting to remove me from the board. So that took place on August 24th, and um, to the great surprise of a lot of people, they failed to get me off the board when a vote was taken. They they couldn't get uh, the two-thirds vote that they needed. So there have been about 30, me- about 30 media pieces about this, if anybody wants to go out and – I, I'm, you know, I've been beaten up on Twitter and that sort of thing. And and you you were able to remain because you stood before uh, your peers. You issued abject apologies. You acknowledged your your crimes, your sins, and they decided to allow you to to stick around. Is that correct? No, I'm, no, 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 no. You're joking. <laughs> I hope. I said, yeah, right. I think you're joking, Mark, because yeah, exactly the opposite. Right. I haven't retracted anything. And I think, you know, New York Post said I, I, I was the you know first target of cancel culture to actually fight back and win. Uh, and, you know, I, I haven't retracted anything that I, I said, uh, but I then did have to be basically the defendant in a two hour meeting attended by about 130 uh, members in which uh, people lambasted me one after another. A few people supported me. I was given three minutes to respond to the five-minute attacks of everybody else, and then a vote was taken. So it's actually the first sort of you know popcorn-optional public cancellation trial. Um, very interesting. I hope some people you know taped it so that it can be listened to or viewed in the future, because uh, it was a little bit like a star chamber procedure. The press wasn't allowed to be there. The members were told they couldn't talk about it afterwards by the law firm that you know some of the people at NBCC had gotten. So yes, yeah, been quite a brouhaha. I, I have had a lot of free speech and media controversies in my career, uh, but this is probably the second or third biggest. <laughs> well, I, I would like your story here to be publicized, broadcast, I mean it has, but e- even more so, so that people realize that if you've spoken out in out of sincere uh, belief and, and you've got some solid principle and evidence, on your side, don't apologize. Don't apologize. If people get offended by that, that's their problem. That's not your problem. And if you apologize for offending someone, you're you're effectively saying I was wrong. It's not just saying I didn't mean to hurt you. You're saying the content of what I said uh, should be should be retracted. And that that to me is is a 
tantamount to an admission of, of guilt or, or error. And don't, don't. I mean, the biggest absurdity of this battle, and, and you know, for your listeners, um, a uh, very fine writer and journalist, Richard Bernstein, who was the Paris and Berlin and UN correspondent in the New York Times, and also a former book critic. Uh, he did a fairly long, comprehensive piece for real, clear investigations ab- about this with a lot of quotations. So if people are interested in reading up on it, the, the stuff in Publishers Weekly, the College Fix, uh, the World, other, other publications. But the great absurdity of my controversy was that this is a critics organization. It's not a book club. It's not a suburban book club where you know people are kind of making nice with each other and then having pizza. Um, you're supposed to be a critic, um, and so I, you know one of the things I've said to some of the media outlets is, you know, there's a lot of work that has to be done in this organization to deserve the third word in its name, National Book Critics Association. You know, I, I said to some people, look, well, why don't you just quit and, and go form a new group, you know, book people for social justice? And one of the answers I got from a colleague is actually it's easier to take over this organization. You know, so I thought, oh, yeah, OK, well, try to take it over. I'm going to fight you on it. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you you mentioned that uh, this sort of goes along with the difficulty the increasing difficulty of being a critic in in, in America, which you you got to be independent. You can't be a conformist if you're if you're going to be a critic. You got to keep your keep your in, integrity. That makes you reliable. That means that's why people come to you for a, an opinion. Now, you know, many years ago, uh, Steve Wasserman started the, this LA Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, connected to the Los Angeles Times. It was very successful, as, as I understand. Uh, yeah, it, it and was very highbrow and sophisticated. Right, and, and you could actually subscribe to the L.A. Book Review from across the country uh, without subscribing to the L.A. Times newspapers. So it was, but the Times, I, I don't know, it was in the early aughts, I think. The Times actually cut the book review. I don't think they eliminated right. it. But they cut it no, way they back. they have a couple they, of pages now. Yeah, they changed it. And, and Wasserman's point was that, look, this, this was not even a good marketing decision. I mean, it wasn't even a good financial uh, decision here. It brought a lot of prestige to the LA Times. And he thought that this went along with a national trend in the decay of book reviewing, and that he regarded it as a national tragedy. Are you, are you that? Oh, he's right. Are, are you that? Yeah, Mark, no, it's just, you know, I have to say, you know, I, I, I'm a law school graduate. I've been a journalist. I've been a professor and so on. The stupidest managers I know are the people who run newspapers. You know, really, they do not understand how, appeal to audi- how to appeal to audiences. And so what we've seen over the last decades is just the endless cutting of cultural coverage that people want to read and a replacement with yet more sports coverage and political coverage and shootings and so on. And then they wonder why circulation has plummeted. Uh, so, yeah, it was a stupid thing for the L.A. Times to do. The only paper that has gone in the other direction is the Wall Street Journal, which expanded its book section. And it's not a surprise to me that it's one of, you know, either the top or second top, you know, circulation paper with USA Today in the country. Uh, so, you know, th- this is unfortunately a lost cause. But I wanted to make another point, you know, in regard to the critic. Um, and, and here, if, if you don't mind, I'll just bring in what I said to some of my colleagues at NBCC. Read my book, 
America the Philosophical. And what you'll notice is there are right-wing thinkers in it. There are left-wing thinkers in it. There are classic liberal intellectuals. There are center-right types, right? There are radicals. And that's because I believe in a great philosophical culture operating in America. That's what, you know, the book argues that we are the greatest philosophical culture in the history of the world. You know, some people have joked that's ridiculous. I think it's true by whatever criteria you want to put forward. But I think it's important for a critic like like me to be open, you know, to writing from across the political spectrum, across the ideological spectrum. And so, you know, there are people who will go into that book and say, oh, wait, you got a chapter on Harold Bloom, but you also have chapters on Noam Chomsky, and you say what you think. So I kind of wrote that book as a critic, you know, thinking my way through the hundreds of books, you know, that I, I had read that I thought was, was relevant. And that's what we're not seeing, and we're not seeing it in NBCC either, because NBC has tilted very, very far to the left. And I, as a liberal intellectual in my own mind, you know, even if I tilt a bit to the left on some things and then to the right of Attila the Hun, you know, on some foreign policy things. I think we have to pay attention to books from the right, the center and the left if we're going to be a genuine critical culture. So um, you can see I get fired up as I think about it because I, I hate the way people blinker themselves in the you know public intellectual world and say, you know, I'm on the left. I don't have to pay any attention to the right. I'm on the right. I don't have to pay any attention to what people are writing on the left. I read both. Well, I, I'll, I'll admit I was a member of the, of the National Book Critics Circle, and I left uh, last year, and I sent a note to them because I, I said, look, this is the, the, the spectrum of what you consider respectable opinion is narrowing too much for me. <laughs> and so yeah, if, yeah, you, no, if you open back up a correct. little, if you open back up a little bit, I'm back. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll send you my dues. You, you, you got me. But, well, what I would say to you, Mark, is you should rejoin and you should run for the board because what I'm going to do in the next few months is try to round up a lot of people in the center and conservatives to rejoin the organization because in the good old days, we had people like Christopher Ricks and David Lehman you know, who, who balanced the ideological you know, fervor on the board and it was a lot more fun, a lot more exciting. And it didn't get that personal, and we'd all go out, you know, for a meal and a drink afterwards. Uh, and that—that's the way a critics' organization should operate. Oh well, there's the thing, you know, that's an important point, Colin. They're not having any fun, you guys. Right. It's, yeah, it's, it's not fun when it's, you know, it's all one dimension, and everybody's expectation is the same, and everyone's afraid to criticize, you know, a book that a peer has recommended. You know, that's, if you don't want to be a critic, fine. You know, go off and be a third baseman. Do anything you like. But, you know, if you're going to be a critic, you have to be open to criticism yourself. Now, you, you, I was going to bring up the Wall Street Journal because, you know, every day the Daily Journal has that big, long book review, about 800 words, on the first opinion page uh, there in, in, in the back. And then the, and then the Saturday Journal has multiple and long-form reviews out there now and it's been i understand from what you say it's been very successful why haven't other newspapers taken the lesson well mark you wrote a book called the dumbest generation right 
you know, that, that, that title could also apply to newspaper editors of recent times. Uh, they do not understand that people who buy a newspaper or subscribe, they want a kind of overarching, comprehensive look at the world, which includes books and culture. And especially professional, well-educated people care about books. So, yeah, the, the journal is doing what a lot of papers, including mine, used to do. I used to have five daily book reviews in the Inquirer, and they would shrink and shrink. And when we got down to around 300 words, you know, I said to the editor-in-chief, you know, this is kind of worthless at this point. These are blurbs. Why don't you just give me the space and we'll have one more long book review on Sunday? But, yeah, they've evaporated around the country. And I think, you know, when you look at circulation declines, you know, the, the bosses always want to say, oh, it's the digital revolution. It's this and that. Well, that's part of it, but but a lot of it is also bad decision-making by people running media companies and newspapers about their audiences. Uh, a personal question. What is the satisfaction, what is the joy that you take in when, when you finished a book review? Um, I, I, I think part of the personal pleasure is that you've been able to bring together a coherent expression of your view of a book. I mean, when we're young, you know, as, as journalists and writers, you know, we love seeing our name in print and byline fever and so on. But the more intimate pleasure really is that you haven't uh, let the experience escape without any coherent, uh, you know, um, legible evidence of your experience. So when I go back sometimes, I, frankly, at, at, at my age, uh, sometimes people say, oh, you reviewed my book, and I can't even remember that I reviewed the book. I'll go back and I'll read it and say, oh, yes, I remember, yeah, that was a really fine book, and that was my take on it, and so on. And so, you know, having the work product, I think we all feel this as writers, you know, you can't control what your book is going to do in the world. But what you can take pleasure from is sitting there with it on your lap and thinking, God, I, I actually did this and it's going to survive me. Um, so I think there's some of that feeling with the book review too. Um, you know, I've, I've written several thousand, I think at this point in my career. And, and now I tend to think about going back and maybe gathering the ones that still stand up and, you know, publishing them. Yes. Yeah. That may be a pipe dream, but you know, I, when I think about what should I write next, I often think I've written so much already. I, I ought to try to gather that. <laughs> well, what courses do you teach at Penn? Uh, this term, I'm actually, ironically, teaching a, a seminar of uh, free speech and the First Amendment tradition. Um, and I'm also teaching uh, one of my standard seminars uh, called Journalism and Public Service, which is a kind of philosophy of public service uh, course and how journalism and the public service world sometimes cooperate, sometimes conflict. Do some of the students have some misgivings about the First Amendment? Uh, I seem to have drawn pro-free speech sorts, but it's still early in the term, so some of that will come out. Um, as you know, you know, many people think of you know undergraduates today as a snowflake generation, and they don't want offensiveness, and they don't want hate speech, and so on. But I've already noticed that I have some students pushing back against that. And, um, you know, I, I think what I do find, and this is very relevant to your book, The Dumbest Generation, is uh, how little they actually know. 
I mean, just to give you one quick example before we split, I mean, almost everybody in the U.S. thinks, oh, it's a free country. We have a great free speech tradition. If you actually go back and read the scholars like Leonard Levy, uh, you know, of the colonial period, we were not a free speech culture. There was tons of action against blasphemy and sedition and so on. Our free speech as it exists today is really a right that was won over a very long period of time. Um, and so they're often ignorant of that. They say, oh, wow, you know, you could go to jail for just saying uh, – I mean, for instance, you, you, know, you could go to jail for denying the resurrection or denying that Jesus was the Son of God back in the 18th century. Um, so, it, you know, I, I think uh, – I liked your book, um, and I think, you know, it's very important for educators to make sure students leave college knowing something. What, what, final question, Carlin. What advice would you give – to a young, a 20-year-old, young, aspiring critic. Yeah. Now, this may seem contradictory given what I said about the National Book Critics Circle, but I, I really would say join the National Book Critics Circle because you make a lot of contacts and there's a lot of networking and you can meet book review editors, the ones that survive, and your assignments will increase. Um, the other recommendation would be um, read a lot of book reviews, read literary journalism, go to bookstores, see what's coming out, um, and understand what what, what the, the tone is about certain types of books, what people are, are saying about uh, breaking books that are going to affect public culture. I would take a book like Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. You know, whether you like what she's saying or not, it's getting a lot of publicity. People are going to be referring to it. So you need that in your head. You can't look up everything. You need in your head, you know, what is actually in the intellectual atmosphere as you're writing a review. And then don't be shy. I mean, you need to contact book review editors and say who you are, what your expertise is, what your credentials are, and say, I'd love to write for you. That's how it gets started. Yeah. Carlin Romano, thank you for joining us. A pleasure. Good to talk with you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.